Hello, and welcome to the Lake Forest Church Huntersville Sermon Podcast. We are a community of skeptics, spiritual explorers, and longtime followers of Christ. To learn more about who we are as a church and how you can get connected, visit lakeforest.org. One of the things I hear most often these days from friends and neighbors is this idea of, man, I can't wait to just get back to normal. Normal school life, normal work life, normal sports life, normal church life. In fact, the only place that feels normal right now, according to all of my friends, is Lowe's and Home Depot. (laughs) They never left normal. If in February of this year, your entire stock portfolio was a third Lowe's, a third Home Depot, and a third Zoom, you are listening to us right now, retired, sitting in a hot tub with your soulmate in a chalet somewhere. Congratulations. You, you, You got it right. But this whole idea of waiting for normal has kind of left us in the proverbial waiting room. We're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And as one Lake Forest teenager confided in me, Mike, it seems like life is just passing me by. And so I'm asking the question with you today, live here at 1024 a.m. on Sunday, is there more for us in this season than to just endure it? Reminds me of an old story about a father and son walking through their orange grove. And the father turns to the son and he says, you know when the best time to plant a tree is, son? And the son says, when, dad? And he says, 10 years ago. But you know when the second best time is to plant a tree, son? Right now. And in a way, that's what this sermon series for five, six weeks is back to life is about. The temptation for me, I know, I'm talking to my own self (laughs) out of God's word today, is to just hold back uh, and and to uh, just hold my breath to wait it out and try to endure. But what if God can actually grow some things? What if we plant a few seeds in the important areas of our life right now? Because God can grow them and he will to produce something good. So what if we could shift, and this will be our theme statement, from simply enduring life to actively engaging life during the global pandemic? And I'm done with saying during these times, it's a global pandemic. It's a tragedy. Happens every now and then in human history, and we're in it. How can we engage instead of endure life? Well, during his earthly life, Jesus made a staggering promise most of you are familiar with. He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus offers real life, abundant life, full life, and he did not condition it upon when the circumstances external to yourself are going well, that's when you can have abundant life. There's no condition here. And that's what I believe the Holy Spirit is calling us to in this moment, with our limitations, that God wants to lead us back to life. But it's going to take some courage on your part and mine, and it's going to take some faith. And when we step out with faith, God always is there, ready to just drip his grace on us and drench us. There are many things in our life right now beyond control. But that doesn't mean change is impossible. Growth is impossible. There's a prayer that many of you will be familiar with. It's particularly precious to the recovery community. We love it that the recovery community meets on our campus in normal times, a couple of times a week. 
told it's the largest meeting in, in the North Charlotte area. That makes me happy. It's called the Serenity Prayer. And, and let me read it to you. The Serenity Prayer goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. And see, it's, it's that courage to change the things I can that really this series is going to be about. Back to life. How can we discover again that full life Jesus came to give us in the parts of our life that we can change? And that's my prayer for you and for me. And we're going to do this by looking at the life of a man in the Old Testament who I think embodies the serenity prayer. A man named Nehemiah. And I want to introduce him to you and I want to introduce his story to you in today's message and lay a little bit of the roadmap of where we're headed over these next few weeks. And so I want to jump right into the text. If, if you have a Bible uh, or can turn in your Bible app to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, that's where we're going to start. It's a book in the Old Testament. That's before the time of Jesus. And it's, uh, it has to do with the Hebrew people, the, the people of God as forerunners of, of who Jesus was. Uh, it's part of the, the books of history. Uh, it's called the historical books in the Old Testament. There's the five book of Moses to start the Old Testament, and then the historical books about struggles in the promised land. So Nehemiah, he was a Jewish believer in the one true good God. He was born, however, in exile in the nation of Babylon in a town of Susa. And it's quite probable he had never been to Jerusalem himself, but he heard the stories. He knew Jerusalem was the symbol of life for God's people, the place where they had once lived, the abundant life with God at the center. And one day, Nehemiah's brother comes back. He went and visited Jerusalem and comes back to Babylon and Susa, and that's where our story picks up. And because the ancient Jews were highly literate people, and because Nehemiah was an educated official and he journaled about his life, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, we have it today. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. To honor God's word, would you please stand with us? Stand at home, please. Or if you're at a home worship group, we have a number of home worship gatherings, please stand. And here in the room, please stand to honor God's word. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah, that's the area around Jerusalem, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in Jerusalem are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You may be seated. Nehemiah experienced something you and I are experiencing right now. Loss and uncertainty. And it's not because Nehemiah did something wrong. It was done to him. Now it was bad enough that the Babylonians had conquered his nation and his people. And taking his people to go work for the king back in Babylon. But now he gets word from his brother Hanani that the city that they love is in total disrepair. And God's people are in great trouble and great disgrace. And Nehemiah thinks to himself, this is not how things are supposed to be. And his heart breaks. He weeps and he mourns for several days. See, Nehemiah found himself in a season of loss and uncertainty that was not his fault. Just like you. There are some of you parents, you will never have the memory 
and you won't have the picture to remember it by of holding your five-year-old's hand, walking them to their first day in kindergarten. I remember that well, and I'm sorry. You have lost that, and that's not your fault. Weddings are happening differently, if at all. Funerals happen differently, if at all. Our ministry partner who we prayed for last Sunday at the end of my sermon, Steve Kinsler, he died this week of COVID-19. There's no funeral scheduled yet for several reasons, including that we need to pray that his wife heals from her own ongoing COVID-19 symptoms. This is a loss. This is uncertainty. High school football may not happen. Just walking into homeroom at school and saying, what's up, or whatever you kids say to each other these days. The version of, what's up, that's what we did in the 90s. And, and let me say to those of you out of work, those of you stressed parents, some of you have growing marital tension that being cooped up at home has exacerbated. For everyone a little off kilter, I just want to say, this is not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your personal failure. It's a once in a century or more pandemic. And I think Jesus would want to say to you, he, he wants to banish and take on as his own burden and disburden you from any shame or guilt, any sense of failure you have right now as a result of how you're handling, how the pandemic has fallen on you and how you are dealing with the uncertainty and the stress, the financial pressure for some of you. The increased depression and anxiety, loss. This has been done to you. You didn't cause this, and you can't be expected to know how to handle it perfectly. Nor can our leaders. Lean into the grace of God through Jesus and the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. It's okay. But it happened to you. And that's Nehemiah. Loss and uncertainty. His city destroyed. His people scattered. God's people. He lives in a place he doesn't want to live. He's got a job he doesn't want to have, and he can't worship God on the day and in the way he used to. He's a captive to external forces, as are we all in a fallen world. We must make our peace with this aspect of the reality we find ourselves in. Yet, we're only in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah do? Because, see, we're all sitting in this same place. What do we do like Nehemiah? Well, what, to get into this, I need to tell you Nehemiah's job. It's pretty important. He is the cupbearer to the king of Babylon as an imprisoned foreign servant or slave. And he's in charge of the wine for the palace. Sounds like kind of a cool, cushy job, bougie job. But he's not just a guy in a tuxedo serving martinis. He also seems to be in charge of the money, the palace checkbook. Now, that doesn't sound like a very good idea to put the guy in charge of the wine in charge of the money also, right? Maybe that's why the Babylonian capital is now a howling desert and they did not endure. The wine guy and the money guy were the same guy. But, but the easiest thing for Nehemiah to do in his loss and uncertainty would have been to do nothing. Nothing, to just endure. Keep serving wine, keep writing checks, just give up, sit there, maybe complain on social media a little bit. But instead of just enduring, Nehemiah engages with life, even in the uncertainty. And he does something remarkable. The first thing he does is praise. Bible scholars will point out to you, and if you've got your own Bible open, look at it, 
Two-thirds of chapter 1 of Nehemiah is prayer. Read it for yourself. And as chapter 1 ends, we see a hint. Nehemiah has decided to engage the things he can change. He's going to engage in action, maybe even a plan to get back to life. Verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he notes, I was cupbearer to the king. What's Nehemiah's situation? He cannot single-handedly overthrow the Babylonian empire. That's not under his control. He can't change everything, but he can change some things. And he knows there's so much out of his control. And so he's going to ask for God's help and trust that God wants to bring parts of life back to himself and his city. So today, as an introduction, I want to draw your attention to four acts of courage that Nehemiah takes here that we can follow, I believe. And maybe one, maybe all of them are an action for you to engage back to life this week. So what did Nehemiah do to engage instead of endure? Number one, engage your grief over what is lost. We all need to ask God for the courage to admit where things are not okay. This takes courage. And one of the most striking things about Nehemiah chapter 1 is just how he grieves. I don't, if I knew my journal was going to be preserved in the Bible for all times, I don't know if I would have written this. I'll read it to you again. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. His first engagement is to admit things are not okay, to name it, to mourn it. And he doesn't do it quickly or in a surface manner. This is not how things are supposed to be. Jerusalem is supposed to be a place of life and celebration, worship, joy. But instead it's in ruins, people are discouraged, and they're running on spiritual fumes. Sounds a little bit like us. I know family members who have not been able to see their loved ones in the hospital due to the pandemic. Weddings, funerals, Friday night football, your freshman year in college, I'm sorry that this is happening to you. Your senior year in high school, I'm sorry. Your first year in high school, your first year of school, I'm sorry this is happening to you. We all have the nagging sense and agreement this is not how it's supposed to be. And please don't blame the shopkeeper asking you to wear a mask or the teacher doing the best they can to, to lead your child's class online. Uh, the fault is a global pandemic. Just grieve it instead of blaming people. It's important to name this loss. And so he sits down and weeps. Psychologists who study change, like human change, say that one of the first steps before we're ever able to make a change is admitting when things are not okay and that we long for them to be different. My own version of this, uh, it's been multiple times in the pandemic for me, but back in April was the first real time. I found myself stressed and angry. My fuse was short. I was having troubled dreams, waking up multiple times a night. They were pandemic related. And I was like, this is not okay. I don't want this to be my life, however long this lasts. I need to figure out what's happening here, happening here and name it. And so I said out loud to Angie and some friends of mine, hey, I'm living with low-level COVID depression. Happy, happy, happy me. <laughs> I don't like to admit when things are wrong or problems. The staff, our staff hesitate to bring me a problem because they know I hate problems. <laughs> but this was me. And before I needed to, could move forward, I needed to own it, that I was not okay. Where in your life are you not okay? What's not working the way it should? For some of us, it's our emotional health. For others, it's our relationships with people we're in constant contact with. For others, it's extreme loneliness. 
For others, it might be a sin or a habit you've gone back to that, if you're honest, is sucking some life out of you. Where might the thief be robbing you of the life Jesus wants to give you? And that's the first step to getting back to life, is having the courage to engage what is not okay. And I can't change. Saying them out loud to God or someone else doesn't make them worse. It makes it the start of getting better. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. Secondly, he also has the courage to ask for God's help. We have a storage barn in our backyard. It's pretty big. They rewrote the neighborhood covenant, I understand, after the guy who built our house built this shed. It's it's a big barn. Uh, And uh, 4th of July weekend, Angie and I cleaned it out for the first time in years. It took us days. It was scary. We found multiple mice nests and snake skins that had been, you know, ew. So we were a little, little leery of those boxes we hadn't touched in 15 years. We made one huge pile in our side yard for the dump, one huge pile for Goodwill, and a big pile for the Habitat Restore. And it wore me out making those piles, and that was the, the center of the summer heat. And it was exhausting to me to think of how many loads this is going to take in Angie's little SUV to get that stuff off our property. But then my load was lightened when my neighbor Paul offered himself and his truck to deal with the pile of stuff we needed to move. Thank you again, Paul. (laughs) I appreciate it. And in a way, this might be how some of us uh, often try to live out the life of faith. We're what one author calls practical atheists. We believe in God, but we live as if the Christian life is something we can do our own power and on our own strength. Have you settled into being a practical atheist and not actually talking to God about God's help and God's presence during the pandemic? Because let me state the obvious. There's no life of faith without prayer. You can't have a relationship with another person without conversing with them. And God is a person. Three persons, one God. The great Reformation pastor Martin Luther put it this way. Quote, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. A spiritual life without prayer is like a car without gas, a football team without a quarterback, or nachos without jalapenos. It does not work. And that's what we see in the life of Nehemiah. He weeps, he fasts, and most importantly, he prays for days. And so let me ask you, during this global pandemic and things you can't control, what role is prayer playing in your life right now? It's super important. You can engage God. You can change that. You can be a person of prayer. Where do you need God's help, God's strength, God's power, God's spirit? Have you asked him? And I want to offer something specific to you. Praying out loud in your normal voice about your life, like talking to God out loud, that's a a key change that happens in a person's relationship with God. When you do that, that's one of the most sure ways over time to eventually experience the presence and comfort of the Holy Spirit. I suggest you do that today, every day this week. Pray out loud in your normal talking self with your normal words. They don't have to be real nice words. Just talk to him out loud, and I believe the Holy Spirit will meet you there. And because, by the way, we need prayer because the scriptures are really clear. There's a very real conflict going on in our world. It's not about mass or no mass, or who's in the office or not in the office, or whether we school in person or online. The battleground, according to the Bible, is a spiritual one. And the battleground is in our hearts and our souls. And prayer is how we engage the power of the Holy Spirit in a daily life of faith. And that's what Nehemiah does. Cries out to God for help. It's two-thirds of chapter one. But he doesn't stop there. He admits what's out of his control, what's not right. 
He has the courage to ask for God's help and he engages in prayer, but he also has the courage to ask for the help of those around him. So let's keep reading in Nehemiah chapter 2. This is as far as we'll get today in Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, I'm told that's right after the month of Toyota, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? (laughs) I love this scene. The king obviously knows him well because he calls out Nehemiah. He's like, something's not right with you, Nehemiah. And so this turns into a God moment. And Nehemiah is faced with the same challenge you are faced with when you're asked what's really going on. Is he going to tell the truth? Or is he going to play the, nah, I'm good, cover-up game? as a polite southerner he can take the risk he can engage and share the honest version of his story and that's what he does right did you hear it he said to the king first of all he started may the king live forever that's how you talk to kings i wish i had taught my sons to talk to me that way may dad live forever can i have the keys of the car dad that that would have been a good parenting move um he's like why shouldn't my face look sad my city's in ruins He tells the truth about the condition of his heart. And this is our number three act of courage to engage. Number three, Nehemiah courageously engages those around him. He engaged his brother in chapter one and now his boss. One of the challenges in this pandemic season is that just when we need each other the most, (coughs) we find ourselves more isolated than ever. A recent study published in Forbes magazine says one out of three Americans are dealing with symptoms of, of anxiety and depression. Teenage depression, including suicidal ideation, are on the rise. And adult loneliness is at an all-time high in our country. Christian community, the life Jesus came to offer to belong with others, was meant to be a place of grace, love, healing, and mutual support. But this will not and does not happen on its own. We have to choose to engage it. That's why, as I shared last week, at Lake Forest Church, one of our core strategies for discipleship, for spiritual growth, is something we call belong. Our desire is every person, student, or child have a group, a circle of faith-filled friends they get to do life with, learn God's word, and care for one another. The kind of friends you can call on for support, for prayer, for encouragement. And you have to engage and become that friend in order to have them. We've got new groups starting up this fall you can be a part of. But for now, just take a little self-inventory. Do you have that kind of community? Do I have those kind of faith friendships? I know it's hard and it's not automatic. You can't just add water. And if not, are you willing to take a step to engage it? And Lake Forest Church group leaders of every age, oh, man, we need for you to take initiative and connect people in the context of God's word and an environment of caring. And thanks for how you're doing that. Well, let's get back to the story, because what happens next, and this is the end of this morning's part of the story, is something no one saw coming. Nehemiah shares his heart with the king, and he tells the most honest version of himself to someone he knows well, and look at how remarkable the king's response is. Verse 4, the king said to me, well, okay, that's broken down. What is it that you want? What do you want to do about it? 
Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, that's Jerusalem, where my ancestors are buried, so I can rebuild it. When the king asks Nehemiah what he wants, Nehemiah has the courage to name it. And this is number four, finally. Have the courage to name the change you want. The king asks him, Nehemiah, what do you want? And Nehemiah says, well, king, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. I can't really say it. Tell you what I want, what I really, really, I can't say that. Um, I'll tell you what I really, really want is what he says. I want to bring life back to me and my people. That's what I want, really, really. Uh, life for my friends. And that's what the rest of the book of Nehemiah is all about. We're going to get a chance to travel through it together. And it won't be easy. He's going to face opposition. This isn't like happy. Oh, he prayed. And then everything was beautiful. There's some conflict in this up in here as he gets back to life. Uh, there will be people who think he's crazy. But Nehemiah will continue to engage in these four ways as God leads him to bring life back to the city. And so today as we begin this journey with Nehemiah, I want to ask you that simple question. What is it that you want? Really, really. If the king, King Artaxerxes, or somebody in power in your life, or if Jesus were to ask you like he did the blind beggar one day, what do you want? What do you want God to do in your life or for you this fall? What God-honoring longing and desire is welling up within you? For some of us, it's healing for a broken relationship. For some, it's renewed passion for a relationship with God. Maybe you're taking spiritual growth steps for the first time. For others, it's a godly desire. I want a, the chance to work again and earn an income. For others, it's freedom from shame and guilt and the shadows of furtive habits that keep stealing life that God wants to give us. Perhaps for all of us, it's a renewed sense of hope that God is at work in and through us. What do you want? For God to do in your life this fall and how can you build one habit weekly at least one moment of time weekly that you engage in that direction I have one friend whose overwhelming call in life is to do her part to lead our society to take better care of our planet the way God told us to in Genesis 1 and 2 and so she's trying to clarify how can she move toward that life calling and engage it in a pandemic otherwise she's going to be tempted to feel that her life is meaningless which is a lie a business owner friend of mine has decided in this pandemic he's got challenges, but he's decided to engage clients more personally and relationally and to start a scholarship program for young people of color in his clientele as an act of justice regarding healing the inequities in our society. If I have a friend who's a young mother, and what she really, really wants right now is, is to give herself grace starting tomorrow that she's not going to be the perfect mom and worker and online teacher for her multiple children that start tomorrow. That's what she really, really wants and needs from God. This has not been an easy season of our lives, and it won't, may not get easier soon. But we're looking in this series, what are things we can change? So would you please stand where you are at home and here, and we're going to pray the serenity prayer together for God to give me wisdom to accept things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can. This is my prayer and hope for all of us, and then we'll close in worship. All together, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, 
courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Amen.